So today's message will consist of two parts. The first part will end at the regular time. The second part will will reconvene at 3.30 today. (laughs) What's so funny? I, I, I can't make it for the second part because <laughs> I have another worship service to attend. <laughs> Where's Sung? Is he here yet? Heather, if I don't see him, please thank him. Beautiful song, beautiful words. Yes. I can't wait for that glorious day. Yes. All right. The word is open. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful to be here. First and foremost, that we can worship you. That was the intention today, to worship you, to give you glory. We're thankful that we're with God's people. You're up, Lord. I need you to take Alan now, take him off the stage, and I need you front and center. I need you in the limelight now, Lord. Help me preach this message with boldness because this is your word. Help me preach this message with humbleness because this is your word. Lord, we pray for changed lives as as you changed mine. So if we pray for today, again, thank you for this opportunity, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to talk about priorities today. I'll be honest with you. Actually, we're going, to, we're going to pick on Nehemiah today. So I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. So I'll be honest with you. When I first read the story of Nehemiah, I asked myself, what's so important about building the wall? I was really tempted to skip him and look at someone else's story. But the Lord told me to read it again. And again, and again. And every time I did, somehow I found little gems that I didn't pick up the last time. And after several passes, the story of Nehemiah is now one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Isn't that typical of the Word of God? It will never run out of wealth. I don't care if you've read it cover to cover multiple times. You can never exhaust the Word of God. Amen? So if I may, let's take our spiritual shovel and dig into God's Word and find those little treasure nuggets together. So two things, two things that I learned from the story of Nehemiah. And there's a lot, there's a lot more, but I'm just going to focus on two, which brings me to my two points. His priority for God's people and his priority for God's work. Let's start with my first point. And before that, I want to develop Nehemiah's character for a little bit. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the King Artaxerxes, cool name, who was the leader of the Medo-Persians. Persia, back in the day, was a superpower nation. Now, a cupbearer, I thought, was just another word for busboy, who did errands all day. But I was wrong. See, in today's world, Nehemiah will be like the chief of staff. 
If you wanted to see King Artaxerxes, you have to go through Nehemiah first. This had to be a man that the king could fully trust and that the king can fully depend on because he spent a lot of time with him. His job was to taste and approve the food first before it went to the king. In many ways, he was the second most powerful man in the nation, close to the queen. Nehemiah had a successful, very successful, full-time job that you would not want to jeopardize it. But although having this lavish life, Nehemiah was concerned about others. As we read in the first chapter, that's where his heart was, his passion. A heart for God and a heart for God's people. In a perfect world, he'd rather be in the temple with God's people than in a palace with kings and queens. In other words, he had the finest world had to offer, but he wanted to be with God and with God's people. Brothers and sisters, is that how you felt when you came to church today? Are you sincerely glad to be in the house of the Lord with God's people? Were were you looking forward to going to church, learn about God, be with God's people and worship Him together? Like the psalmist who said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It's plain and simple. When you're living a godly life, you will want to be with godly people. What's the opposite of that? If you're not living a godly of a life as you want to, you will not want to be with godly people. See, there are some people who will say things like, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. That doesn't make any sense. You can't say you love Jesus if you don't love his people. 1 John 4.20 1 John 4.20 says, If a person says, I love God, but hates his brother and sister, what does it say? He's a liar. I didn't make that up. If a person does, does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You know, one of my favorite things about our church is the fellowship we have after the meetings and the relationships we have outside church events. Because we want to be simply together. That's what it should be because that's what the word says. Nehemiah loved God and loved his people. Let's read in chapter 1, verse 1. Nehemiah 1, 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, Nehemiah said, too bad, so sad, and he went on with his life. Is that what it says up there? Is that, is that what it says in your word? No. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. He had to sit down. For some days, not hours, he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
Si Nehemiah was deeply moved and bothered by this news. It's called compassion. You must remember that these people were a thousand miles away and that he's never met any of them before. He is in Persia. They were in Jerusalem. But hearing this news broke his heart for days. See, God wants our hearts to break over the things that break his. Our hearts should be moved by the things that move his heart. Remember when Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19.41? Because his people were hurting. Same thing with Nehemiah here. He wept over Jerusalem because God's people were hurting. It moved his heart so much that pushed him to do something about it. He fasted and prayed. Now, I'm not a Bible scholar, but I read that Nehemiah's prayer is one of the longest prayer in the Bible. Read it in chapter 9. Prayer was one of the key things Nehemiah did in his life for God's people. If you study this book, you'll find that he always prayed first. Prayed first and then moved forward. Prayed first and then said something. Prayed first and then planned something. See, a lot of times we come up with a plan, act on it, and then ask God to bless us. No. Get the plan from God, always base it on biblical principles, and then pray and ask if that's even the Lord's will at the time. See, that's what Nehemiah did. His compassion made him move to pray. Let's pick up on verse 5 in the same chapter. Verse 5, same chapter. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. I want you to leave that verse up there for a second. Did you see what Nehemiah did when he first prayed the prayer? He made God bigger than the problem. That should be the same perspective every time we present God our problems. You know, a woman, a woman once said to an evangelist, I only take small things to God because I don't want to worry him with the big things. To this he replied, Lady, anything you bring to God is small. See, we tend to magnify our problems when we should magnify God instead. The second part of that prayer. Nehemiah identified with God's people. I love that compassion he felt for God's people when he hadn't been in Jerusalem before. He didn't point fingers. He could have said, that's their fault. That's the Israel's fault. That's their leader's fault. What's that got to do with me? That's not my problem. He sees himself as the problem too. Their problem was his problem. As a body of believers, we need to support and pray for one another. When someone is in need, it should become our need. When they hurt, we hurt. When they triumphed, 
we should celebrate with them. You know, one of, the one call is one of the great tools we have at our church, and I'm very thankful for it. And I do hope you do pause and pray when you hear it. You know another great resource that we have? The prayer list. Have you ever read this? Yeah? Let me rephrase that question. Have you ever, re- have you ever read everyone else's request beside yours? When you get this, do you skip and pass by all the names until you see yours just to see if the requests are still there and updated? Does it cost us to pray for someone else? And we can't really say that prayer takes a lot of our time. Folks, if you can't spare 20 seconds to pray for someone else, you better recheck your schedule because you're spreading yourself way too thin. You want to see a quick prayer? Let's check chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, and there's a reason, real quick, there's a reason why he put a date in here. It's been four months since Nehemiah prayed for, his, for, the, uh, for that request, and it took four months. So here we go. The Lord's about to answer. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can nothing be but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, and rightfully so, because part of Nehemiah's job was to cheer up the king. If you come, if you come to his throne with sadness and, and with a sad face, not only your job is in jeopardy, but your life is too. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face... Not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Ding, ding, ding. You guys see that? He's in the middle of a conversation with this king. He doesn't have time to do a long prayer. I call it the microwave prayer. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Let me pause here for a second again. Someone said, when you kneel before the king in heaven, you can stand before any king on earth. Amen. Amen? Let's continue. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? Valid question. He's about to go on a leave of absence. Here we go. It pleased the king to send me. So I said, a time. So here we go. Nehemiah got his green light from the Lord and the approval from the king to rebuild the walls in his hometown. The king even included free supplies and a military escort to start the work. That's how he does it with the people that honor him. He will answer your prayers more than what you ask for. He's making things happen now. See, someone said there are three kinds of people. There are people who make things happen. There's people who watch things happen. And then you, don't, you have people who don't know what's happening. 
right? They, they're looking around and they have no clue. I, how come nobody reported this to me? And then you have many people who just watch others do the work. And it's odd because these are the same people who normally have a lot to say. And then you have a few that set things in motion. That's who Nehemiah was. Which brings me to my next point, God's work. It's off to a great start, I think. So it's pretty much smooth sailing from here on out, right? No. Chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, what did they do? They mocked and ridiculed us. See, opposition will always show up during the Lord's work. Count on it. Ever notice that opposition never shows up when you're praying for something or in the planning stage or you're about to start something? Opposition only comes when progress starts. It's because Satan knows you're a threat to his kingdom. So you're either a threat or a treat for him. You choose. He knows you inside and out, what distracts you, what makes you weak, what makes you sad, what makes you mad. And even though he can't touch you, he can put something in your mind and let it marinate there until you fall into sin. The bigger question is, do you know him? Do you know his tactics enough to avoid it? I know the 49ers are playing today. Do you think the 49ers will have the audacity to play on that field today without knowing their opponents first? No. They've studied and analyzed every offensive and defensive strategy they've ever played, so they know how to react. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem took every means necessary to sidetrack God's workers even to the point of threatening their lives. Believe me, they tried not only once, not twice, five times. They wanted to create confusion and distraction among the people of God because they know confused and distracted people cannot go forward doing God's work. See, Nehemiah knew better than to engage with these people. These people just wanted to argue and waste time. Do you know those kind of people? They just want to argue just for the sake of argument. No, he took the issue straight to God because he knew that they were not the real enemy, that they were just pawns from the devil. So he ignored them, prayed, and went back to work. When they were threatened, he prayed again, made some defensive moves, defensive moves and then went back to work. The workers had to carry, as a matter of fact, the carry had to to carry, the workers had to carry weapons on one side and then tools on the other side. What a sight. Satan's tactic of distraction did not stop them from doing the Lord's work. Folks, the distractions we have in this world, oh my goodness, are endless. Between the news, yes. The social media, right? The politics, Don't even get me started. The pleasures and entertainments of this world, what's making you stop or even slow down from doing God's work? 
It's time to get up and get busy. And that's what we'll see in the next chapter. In chapter 3, lists all the names and the nameless who worked on the wall. Great men and women of God who obeyed and gave God the glory. Since we're pressed for time, you can read the verses at home. But I do want to mention some interesting points that I thought might apply to us. Chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to jump through there. It says, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. <laughs> Alan, why did you pick that verse? I, well, I asked myself, how come the nobles didn't do the work? Perhaps these nobles thought the work was beneath them and that they thought they were called for a greater purpose. Is there a job where I can lead instead? Or is there a position where I don't have to do any manual labor? Can I be in charge of a ministry instead? These people thought they were overqualified to do God's small work. Listen, if you can't be trusted with small things, the Lord can't put you in charge of many things. Read it in the parable of the towns in Matthew 25, 14. It's not my, it's not my rule. Jumping to verse 8 now. Verse 8. Uziel, son of Haraiah, one of the goldsmiths, and repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. Would you hire a goldsmith and a perfume maker to build your house? No. If anyone can say, that's not my job or I'm not good at it, it would be these people. But then again, I've mentioned before, God's not looking for your ability, but your availability. Folks, there's a lot of works and not enough laborers. There's no such thing as unemployment in God's work. Verse 12 now. Let's jump to verse 12. Shalom, son of Haluhesh, ruler of half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. I love this man. And that he made this work a family affair. Not only did he do a bring-your-kids-to-work day, but he also put them to work. Notice that he didn't drop off the kids to work, but led them by example. Parents, this is a great role model for us to learn from. Sometimes words are not enough. Let's not just teach, but also show our children by backing up what we say. And to all the ladies, please take note of this verse. Your work for Christ doesn't get unnoticed. And I'm thankful for the ministries of the women here in this church. Jumping to verse 20 now. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. This is probably one of my favorite verses in this story. That word zealously means passionately. This man gave his all to the small task he was appointed to. You know, there could have been bigger and better things to work on, but he didn't look around to see. He was fully content with what he was assigned to and came to work every day with joy and a smile on his face. Must, must have been the best-looking wall. Wait, wait a minute. You're just putting up cement blocks. That's so easy. Anyone can do that. Big deal. 
Or you just vacuum the floor. You, you just serve food. You just babysit the kids. Or you just set up the stage. Big deal. Friend, it might not be for you, but it is with our Heavenly Father. It was so important that Baruch's name made it in the Word of God. The most famous book in the history of mankind. Generations and generations will be reading about him and about about his little piece of the wall that he worked on. Servants for Christ, I call on you. Take whatever ministry you have, big or small, and do it with passion. With all your heart, wholeheartedly. You don't have one, volunteer for one. You got too many, be thankful and maybe just do it better. And let's not forget who we're really working for. So the wall was finally completed in a remarkable 52 days. 52 days, what took the locals decades to retry and build, rebuild. What was the secret? The workers simply worked together in unison. They put away distractions and their differences. Their purpose was more important than their opinions. Last verse for the day. Nehemiah 6.16, when all our enemies heard about this, you know, after the completion of the wall, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Boom. This is where Nehemiah drops the mic. Humbly. Mission accomplished, the enemies were silenced, and the Lord's name was glorified. Well, you may ask, well, Alan, what is God's work for us? There's no walls to rebuild here. No, our, our job is to teach, preach, and baptize, just like what it says in the book of Matthew. These days, some churches are trading those commandments. They want to entertain, please, and tickle the ears of their members. But Alan, I I can't teach or preach, so what's there for me to do? I totally disagree. I wish I could own this quote. I would rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Your actions speak Teach and preach louder than your words. Folks, your home is your pulpit. Your job is your mission field. Your neighborhood is your outreach. This town needs Jesus more than ever, and we are placed here for that reason. So church, preach on. There's a lot of eyes watching. I want to end with this. See, Nehemiah was a normal and ordinary person just like us. He didn't have any big, amazing talents, but just had an amazing God. What made him great in the eyes of the Lord was that he had his priorities right. He put God's concerns first. He put God's people and God's work as his main priority. Anything of eternal value took precedence. That's where he invested his time. Folks, I will leave you with this question for the day. Where are you investing your time? How's your bank account? I'm not talking about your money. 
How's your heavenly savings account? Does the thing you're spending a lot of time on have eternity's values in view? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us reorganize our priorities, not according to what's important to us, but what's important to you. You know, the world around us shows that we don't have a lot of time left. And Paul said, I have fought the fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. Help us earn that verse. We don't want to see you in heaven with empty hands. Lord, we also want to thank you for this family of God. Help us to protect and cherish what we have in here. In Jesus' name, amen.